Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Today, our guest is Alex Erpan. Uh, Alex started in reinforcement learning during his undergrad at UC Berkeley. After his undergrad degree, he joined Google Brain Residency Program for a year. And at the end of the year, he decided to stay at Google full-time. Uh, he's currently working in brain, at Brain Robotics. Um, and yeah, so welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and I guess I should say that uh, this is just my personal opinion and it doesn't represent Google's opinion. It's, it's just mine. So you wrote uh, a blog post a few months ago and it went viral. So the title of the blog post is Deep Reforms Learning Doesn't Work Yet. We'd like to know a little bit about uh, the motivation for writing this post. Uh, so it's, I think the blog, the, this post is a reality check on the hype around deep reinforced learning. Uh, could you talk about why this hype exists and why it's harmful? Sure. So I guess the, the reason the hype exists has to do with essentially how, how cool it is when you get reinforcement learning to work. Um, so I know that back in, in 2015, when DeepMind had their first results on Atari, and you could like see these learned agents actually learning this pretty wide variety of different games. And also when DeepMind had their big success in like AlphaGo and so on, and, and sort of like the world really started paying attention to these sort of technologies. I feel that it was around that point that people started like getting a lot, a lot of hype around reinforcement learning started like appearing and it had been building up for a while, but sort of like, I feel these were like, like watershed moments in the field for why it's like interesting to work on them or why people wanted to work on them in the first place. Uh, and I suppose that the, the problem here is that a lot of times when you see these demos, there are, they're always at the end of the research process when everything's working and what, what isn't clear from this is like what things are like during the actual research process when things like aren't working that well or what happens when the reinforcement learning you try just doesn't work ever and then you just sort of like give up and move to a different sort of technique. And I think that this, that this sort of selection bias is maybe common across research where you really tend to see the positive results. but. When, when this gets magnified with all of the people who are interested in machine learning and reinforcement learning in particular, then it, it really builds this wave of hype, which I felt wasn't fully deserved by the reinforcement learning techniques at the time. And that was why I started like thinking about writing this blog post and then started working on it. So when you say at the time, do you feel like your, your opinion changed about this over the past few months? Um... I feel like it's it's getting better. I think there are still a lot of random weird things that show up when you do reinforcement learning research, but I I would say that what I feel has changed for the better is that people are I guess talking about the issues of RL a bit more and are a bit more aware of ways that these models can fail and so on and are trying to propose ways to improve it, which is which is really like all I wanted out of the blog post in the sense of what I wanted it to be was like not a, not a post saying that reinforcement learning would never work, but more as like a, as like a period piece of saying 
as of like the moment that I was writing the post, reinforcement learning still has a large number of issues within it, but I think they'll get better. And I think they have gotten a bit better. Yeah, one point that uh, rang a bell for me is uh, that oftentimes people work on a problem and rediscover the same issue that other people have discovered before, after a lot of like work. And uh, I think this is a very important point uh, to make. Uh, the other thing that you mentioned also in the post is practitioners who really want to get something to work for the task at hand, the many of them would assume that uh, deep reinforcement learning is mature enough to be used for that purpose. And uh, your post suggests this is, this is not the case. Yeah. Uh, so my feeling is that there, there are like some aspects of machine learning that are a lot more, I suppose, studied or like proven to be not too annoying to get working. And reinforcement learning is definitely not one of these uh, where it is right now. And, and I suppose that was another reason that I wanted to write this post in terms of essentially so that when people would ask me how they could use RL for their problem, I could tell them that it likely isn't a good idea unless you have like good reasons for why you specifically need reinforcement learning versus some other technique. Right. So in the rest of the post, you listed a number of uh, limitations of current methods. Um, and I'd like to go over them and, and uh, discuss them a little bit more. So the first one you mentioned is that deep reinforcement learning is still orders of magnitude above a practical level of sample efficiency. So this may not be a problem for simulated environments like Atari games, but most real-world problems cannot be simulated this way. And it seems like simulated environments have this uh, double-edged sword aspect to them. On the one hand, they enable a lot of progress in deep reinforcement learning research, but also they diverted the attention away from this fundamental limitation of the, met of the methods. Yeah, I feel like that, that simulation is a very important tool for RL research for, for the reasons that you described, that it, it does let you collect enough data to start asking questions about what can our models learn if we just assume we have all the data we need. And, and that's like a pretty important question to answer. Uh, and then the tricky part is um, when, you're, when you're trying to do this in settings where that isn't true or when, when people talk about applying reinforcement learning to a problem and then haven't fully thought through exactly how much data they'll have available and so on, then, then you start getting into issues of do I actually have enough data for my RL algorithm or do I actually have enough time to collect all of the data I would need if you have access to something which will generate that data if you give it enough time. Um, I would say that the one thing that I've sort of changed my mind about since writing the post is that there are some real-world problems that are somewhat more simulatable or somewhat easier to get lots of data from. And generally, this happens when, you're, when your problems are like primarily software problems in the sense that when things are just all in software, you can just spin up more machines and more copies of the same program, and then this can often be good enough for getting lots of data. And it's and the difficulties of having lots of samples can often come down more to just like when you need to work with real hardware or you need to interact with real humans or things like this. Could you give a concrete example uh, to demonstrate this? Uh, sure. So I guess I work on brain robotics right now. And a lot of what we do is trying to apply machine learning techniques onto real world robots. And in this sense, it it's really changed a lot of the priorities of how I view like how we approach the problem because uh, 
you you can't just like buy a lot of robots. Robots are expensive. Uh, and because of this, it, it really means that the limiting factor is like how much robotics data do you have? And a lot of the other aspects of what go into a machine learning system suddenly become less important relative to this. And it really changes how you approach problems, which, which I like a lot. It's like, it's an interesting perspective. Whereas if you are doing things on like, maybe like just simulated robots, for example, you, you can just spin up lots of copies of your robot simulation. And there have been some interesting reinforcement learning papers that do work primarily in simulation. But a lot of the questions surrounding this is uh, that it's nice that this works in simulation, but we, we want it to actually run on a real world robot at the end of the day. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point about cost conscious learning in general. Uh, I know a bunch of work in natural language processing that thinks about data annotation in a cost conscious way, because uh, I guess we don't use reinforcement learning as much, but we do want to annotate data and you need to think about how do I get that data in a way that's scalable. Um, or if I'm issuing queries to a search engine, I probably have to pay for those queries. Uh, they're interesting things. And I wonder like, if there are any insights on that we can get from reinforcement learning in real world settings with real robots that can apply to like the, these cost conscious kinds of problems that we have in NLP. Any thoughts there? Um, I'm not sure if I have a good answer for it off the top of my head, but I would agree that there, there does seem to be the shared link there of what, what do you do when your data does cost something to generate or to get and so on? And how, how do you change your research to approach it and so on? Um, so I know that at least in the work that I've done recently, We've, we've been trying to see how much we can leverage out of essentially like saved logs or like saved videos of what our robots have been executed in the past and try to really like leverage this as much as possible versus actually running our newly learned models on our robots. Because once, you, once you've saved like videos of execution, then you can just keep training on these as much as you want offline without having to actually run your real world robot. Uh, the main problem is that doing learning from this data can be a lot trickier. So there, there are trade-offs. Yeah, interesting. Good point. Um, can we dig in a little bit more into the sample complexity issue too? Um, you have a nice um, figure in your paper about the rainbow DQN right. uh, that shows dramatically lower sample efficiency, uh, sample inefficiency, higher sample efficiency. Um, on these Atari games, but even this model, you say, still gets, still takes 83 hours of playing an Atari game or the, all of these Atari games in order to match human performance. Yeah. And where, whereas a human within just a couple of minutes can understand what the game is about and get at least reasonable performance. So what do you think, any intuitions about the gap there? How can we close this gap? Yeah, I've, I've talked to a few people about this since uh, I, I guess when I got blog post feedback, generally it was good, but sort of this, the like 83 hours point was one of the main sticking points for people who did have complaints about it. And the, I would say that the common feeling is that when humans play a video game, they have a lot of priors about how that game is going to work or how the world is going to work. Uh, there is this paper, I think it was called Human Priors for Playing Video Games or Human Priors for Atari. 
which studied this, where essentially what they did was they took an Atari game and they, they changed the visuals. So for example, instead of like keys looking like keys and doors looking like doors, your keys are like blue squares and your doors are red squares. And then they got a bunch of human participants to play these games and timed how long it took them to solve them. And they showed that the more you make the game look less like a real world game, the longer it takes for humans to figure out how to solve them. Because they have to relearn this mapping that blue squares are things that let me open red squares, whereas everybody knows a key opens a door. And so what my guess is, is that when you're these RL models, they're always trained from scratch. So they, they're always like relearning everything. Whereas humans, they're, they, they have enough pre-built knowledge that they're able to do these like quick adaptations towards playing the different Atari games. And that's what lets them uh, learn really well. Yeah, that's, a, that's great. That, that was my guess as to what happened. It's, it's good to hear you say the same thing. It's like, if, if I see an asteroid coming at my spaceship, uh, as I'm playing one of these Atari games, I'm pretty sure that I need to move. Uh, whereas, like, um, it, it, yeah, it's this notion of common sense and how do we get machines to have common sense. It's a hard problem. Right, yeah. Um, all right, so the next point in your post uh, was around performance. Uh, you mentioned that if you just care about final performance, many problems are better solved by other methods. Um, and as one of the examples you... Uh, provide links to the NIPS 2014 paper by Gyu et al. in University of Michigan, showing that an off-the-shelf Monte Carlo tree search algorithm outperforms the deep QNet uh, on the Atari benchmark at the time. And it's been a while since 2014. I wonder if this is still true uh, of the recent deep reverse learning methods, if they're still outperformed by uh, traditional methods. Yeah, so I, I got curious about this and I, I double-checked the numbers and it, so it turns out that the baseline DQN that was first proposed does generally perform worse than these tree search methods. Uh, if you compare the numbers for rainbow DQN with sort of all of the various tricks that people have added over the past three or four years, it does start to be a lot more competitive with um, the numbers that you get out of tree search. It's, it's not necessarily like... A, very uh, unambiguous rainbow DQN does better than tree search. It's the kind of thing where some models your planning based approach does a lot better and some models the learned approach does a lot better. Um, and it's sort of like un unclear why exactly that is. I would assume it's just something about how the different games are structured. But um, I mean, I think the theme, the point still valid and you attribute this uh kind of slower start for deep reinforced learning methods is that um, it's hard to encode any problem-specific information uh, as part of the algorithm uh, because of the RL setup, um, which making the problem harder than it needs to be, really. So could you elaborate on, on why th this is difficult, why it's hard to encode problem-specific information? Sure, yeah. So a lot of the ways RL algorithms get motivated is by saying you have some set of states and some set of actions. And if you're in a state and take this action, you go to another state and you get some reward. And essentially, these are all very general concepts where a state is a set of things, your actions are a set of things, and your rewards are just arbitrary float values that you get now and then. And then you do derivations within this entire framework, but and at the end of it, what you get out is a reinforcement learning algorithm, which in theory works in any environment. But 
But then the problem comes in like, if you do know something about your environment, it's not getting captured in this derivation and your algorithm isn't able to make sense of this information. Uh, this is all sort of like very hand wave and not really like a mathematical argument more as like an intuitive one. So maybe an analogy I would make is like, if you, if you have like a bunch of metal cubes and they're scattered all across the room and you want to assemble them in one place, uh, like one way to do it is to like pick each of them up individually and just sort of like sweep them together into one place, which would work for an arbitrary set of objects. Another approach would be like you, you take a very powerful magnet and you put it in the center of the room and because all the cubes are metal, they'll just automatically go there. So you have this sense in which this like magnet-based approach is working because you know your cubes are made out of metal, whereas your other approach works for objects that aren't metal cubes, but is going to be a bit slower. So hopefully that analogy makes it make more sense. I think it does, but at the same time, we designed these methods and we designed a model that's used to predict the actions. Um, and like you mentioned later in the post, we can, we, instead of a model-free, uh, setup you can you can have a model of the of of, of the world that you that makes it easier to encode these problem specific information. So um, I wonder why this hasn't been uh, as common as as it seems to uh, to be. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that it's just that making models of the real world seems pretty difficult, uh, at least empirically. Where if if you can have a nice model of how things work, then a, a lot of the papers in the field show that you do get drastically improved sample efficiency, things work a lot faster and so on. Uh, the, the main tricky part is that when, when the models don't work or when they're hard to learn, then the results are bad and then they don't get published. So it's, it's always this sort of, it goes back to the original like selection bias problem where it's, it's unclear like which models are learnable and which ones aren't if you just try to read the literature. And it, it really just relies on having to like ask people who have experience trying to build models of different kinds of systems or worlds to see what, what is and isn't doable. Okay, okay. so in, in light of this discussion, do you have any thoughts on why the research on deep learning has attracted so much attention, even without necessarily achieving the best results, even with the simulated environments that are not really like representing world, uh, like in the, in the, for the most part, world, uh, real world scenarios? I guess it comes back to seeing what your final learned policy does, where it is very gratifying to see that you, you provide an image of this Atari game and your model outputs an action which actually makes sense and is the right thing to do. And, and that furthermore, it didn't have to do a bunch of... Um, planning in its head or like doing a lot of searches of uh, executing, like if I do this sequence of actions, it'll lead to the right thing. It just sort of takes in the input state and just returns out the action that you want immediately. So I think that there is a, I remember there was like this Andrew Ng Facebook post right when AlphaGo won its first game, where he was talking about one thing that he liked or found exciting was that it took a lot of the online search computation that you normally have to do in game AI, and instead it managed to push it all into the neural net in some way. And that what's exciting about this is that doing neural net inference is a lot faster than doing this full search process. Um, so there's something about 
like knowledge going into the net in some way, which is interesting. See, all right. So uh, moving to the next question, the next point in your post uh, is around uh, reward functions. Um, and you mentioned how hard it is to design a reward function, which actually encourages the desirable behaviors of the model and is learnable. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, how how your choice of the reward function is related to uh, getting stuck in the local optima and the different choices uh, we might have? So I would say that when when humans design reward functions for different tasks, normally what happens is you you try to identify things that you think are helpful for solving the problem, and then you add different constants for like it's good to like say say if it's like maybe like a racing game, it's good to like run over like fuel stops to like get more fuel, or it's good to like pick up this item, which will give you more acceleration and so on. And then you make guesses as to like how, what is like the relative importance of these in terms of letting you finish solving the game. And the tricky part is that then your, your learning algorithm is like, what it decides to do really depends on what constants you pick here. And furthermore, the actual behavior it learns can depend quite a bit on whether you've selected these constants correctly. And and I think that there is like the OpenAI boat racing game which showed that for if you do this like incorrectly, you get into cases where your your agent learns that it should just keep picking up these power-ups that let it move faster without ever actually completing the race, which is what you wanted your agent to learn in the first place. So so sometimes like you pick constants and they work the first time and sometimes they don't. And it's it's just hard to figure out when is when is this going to happen or when are it isn't. I guess the point for all of this is to help in the search so that you can presumably get to the reward that you actually care about faster. Right, yeah. So the whole point is that you're trying to bias the learning in some way that gets you to the final thing you actually care about. And if you do the biasing poorly, then you don't get to the thing you care about. But if you don't add in this biasing at all, it can be tricky to do enough exploration to see what the successful states look like, essentially. Do people remove the biases? Like, I'm, I'm imagining I do some initial search to help the model find like a, a good end state. And once I find a good end state, uh, presumably I have a trajectory that will get me back and I can remove the bi- some of the biases. Do, do people do this? Um, I, I think people can do something like that. So I'd say that's, that's getting close to the idea of expert demonstrations and imitation learning and so on, where you, you give data which you know represents your final success state and then try to have the model learn to reproduce that behavior. And I, I do think that's like a promising line of research uh, in terms of how to get around these problems. Is this roughly sim- uh, re- similar to uh, like the counterpart of this in supervised learning would be having defining uh, an objective function in terms of how how different your prediction are from the gold annotation, and then you may want to add some regularizers. And depending on the structure of the problem, you may come up with more creative regularizations that like help the model reach. Um, the 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 neighborhood or the parameter setup that uh, that you're interested in, would would this be a reasonable uh, approximation of what's going on? Uh, I think it sounds reasonable enough. So I would say that generally, when 
you add regularization in a supervised learning model, it's, it's like it normally helps you. Whereas in, in reinforcement learning, when you're trying to do something similar, it's, it's a bit up in the air. It's more of like a 50-50 thing on whether it helps you or hurts you. Uh, but I think the, maybe the common point is that you have the, the objective you care about and then the regularization you're adding on top that you think will help you uh, achieve that objective. Yeah, it's, 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 I guess it sounds closer to auxiliary tasks, adding auxiliary tasks when you, when you care about one problem, but there are some like related tasks that you think, you think would help you there. And sometimes they don't, they do, sometimes they don't. Yeah. All right, so another point you make is uh, that deep reinforcement learning has yet to have its image net for control moment. Uh, so it's about how we overfit to the environments uh, when we're retraining these models. And you gave several examples of how existing models overfit to arbitrary characteristics of the environment. Could you elaborate on one of the examples to clarify this point? Uh, sure. So in, in the post itself, I talked about uh, two papers, one of which I worked on, one of which I didn't. And the way these both, both of these papers showed this problem can occur is that they played using two-player games, and they have one player's behavior be hard-coded, and the other player is learned by reinforcement learning to learn to beat the second player, essentially. So what you can do is you can train the first player to get high reward, and then you can, at evaluation time, change how the second player's hard-coded behavior is. And what, this, what the argument here is is that if your learned agent has truly learned what it means to beat this game, it should be able to beat like arbitrary opponents. But in practice, if you change how the opponent acts, then it, a lot of times your performance can just like degrade a lot. And then you're suddenly seeing a lot of like weird behaviors show on show up. Uh, I think there's like a video of like a laser tag game in the post where in at learning time, it, it does a good job of like tacking the opponent and then you switch how, how the other agent acts and then it sort of just runs into walls a bunch and like doesn't really move anywhere. Yeah, this sounds a lot like what we uh, face in, in supervised machine learning where uh, oftentimes we like to think of the data sets we're training on as if we're trying to build a model for this task, but really we, more often than not, we overfit the models to the data set on which we're training. And if you take another data set addressing the same task, it does significantly worse. Um, is this the same problem here, or is there a, like a unique uh, characteristic of the problem in, in deep reverse learning that make it fundamentally different? I think it's I think there's like the same underlying root cause, and it's that parts of how reinforcement learning work make the problem more apparent there. So, in reinforcement learning, it's it's a bit less like having a fixed set of data you're learning from. And the more common thing is that you have an environment which generates data depending on how you act within it. So, so because of this, if you have different policies, you can generate wildly different distributions of data. And, and a lot of the reinforcement learning process is interact with the environment, update myself based on what feedback I get. So you get into these cyclic issues where you're updating yourself based on data, which is partially controlled by what you've learned so far. And because of this, you can get into these weird feedback loops where 
you just spiral off into very different parts of the state space depending on what happens. Right. And recently, at least in the NLP uh, domain, we started uh, having um, efforts to combine, like to have like kind of combo tasks where you can, you can evaluate uh, one model or one approach on a variety of tasks to kind of reduce the risk of overfitting to any of them. Uh, I, I don't know if that's going to be the way to address this problem uh, in NLP or in supervised machine learning, uh, but I wonder if you if there is like uh, similar efforts in the deep RL space. Yeah, I think there are similar efforts are happening there or they're, they're starting to happen. So I know OpenAI has, uh, they have their retro game contest, which is essentially uh, it's a contest challenging people to train reinforcement learning on games from the video game Sonic the Hedgehog. And they explicitly set up their contest to be, we'll give you some set of levels which you can train from, and we're going to have a holdout set of levels which nobody is going to be able to see. And your agent is going to have to be able to learn how to get good reward in their test set levels. Um, and I think that this is like a good step in terms of trying to have benchmarks or contests where the the challenge is not just learning to do control and like one one instantiation of your video game or environment but across like a wider distribution i find it really surprising that this isn't how standard evaluation already works like it seems too much like cheating to evaluate in the same environment that you were trained on why don't people switch environments more often so I would say the reason people don't switch environments more often just has to do with where reinforcement learning was at the time, or, or even if you are acting in the same environment that you were training on, a lot of times you would fail to solve the task or you would fail to like, achieve high reward and so on. And because of this, there, it's, it's basically like it's tricky to measure how you generalize to things if you can't learn anything in the first place. Um, and, and so I think that now that reinforcement learning is like starting to become more useful or at least is able to learn more things, now that's why we're starting to see this shift towards having like these test set environments because people actually have some expectation that they'll be able to solve their train set environments and then they can start studying generalization. Yeah, I guess so Waleed started this point on talking about an image net moment for reinforcement learning, like you mentioned in your post, I guess. The, and, and similarly, a glove or word to vec moment or an Elmo moment in, in natural language processing. These are all representation learning challenges, right? Where yeah. given some input that's largely in the class of inputs that I expect to see, I learn some general feature extractor that can work well across a variety of tasks. Uh, it seems hard to think about a general reinforcement learning input. Yeah, like I, I can imagine using Im an image net to do an, a pre-trained image net or a pre-trained Elmo or something to do feature extraction for my reinforcement learning problem. But it doesn't seem like they're I, I'm having a hard time even thinking like, where is the representation learning to do in a general reinforcement learning task? Because they're all so different. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. And what what I would guess what happened was that you would just have to start adding restrictions over what kinds of reinforcement learning tasks you care about. Um, and that uh, I know that there have been some people talking about, um, I think it's like, it's like intuitive physics is what it's called, 
And essentially, that's it has to do with like constraining things to environments where they operate according to however your world physics operates, for example. Um, I think this is based off like there's some like developmental psychology stuff for this, but I don't really actually want to try to explain it because I don't know any of it and I don't want those people to get mad at me. Yeah, yeah, th that, that's a really good point. So I was thinking of like, what are my inputs? But also, like, I think what you're saying is that for real world scenarios, if, if I want to do reinforcement learning that's actually in the physical environment, um, I can get some representation learning on on a model, like model of how the world behaves. Yeah, right. right? Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, I suppose the current uh, benchmarks don't lend themselves to any improvements if you use ImageNet kind of features. Yeah, I guess uh, right now, uh, basically it's just the Terry games look a lot different from ImageNet right. things, or real-world images, I mean. Yeah, and I, I, I love the humorous uh, quote that you take from Jacob Andreas saying that uh, DeepRL is popular because it's the only area in ML where it's socially acceptable to train on the test set. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I like that tweet from Jacob. It's it, it's like, I, I wish it were less true, but it kind of is. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, all right, so the next point in the post talks about stability. And I was actually, I didn't realize that until I read your post, how much uh, variance one should expect in deep RL models, uh, even beyond what we see in uh, supervised neural models. Um, so yeah, so what are some of the reasons behind this extra variance? I think it goes back to the point I was making about the cyclical nature of the data you're receiving depending on what you have learned so far. And, and what I'm guessing is happening is that depending on essentially different aspects of your random initialization or the early steps of your like gradient descent process, sometimes your model will luck into doing behaviors that are productive and sometimes it won't. And if it if it's initially starts doing something that's productive, then it's able to sort of quickly bootstrap off of this and then you see curves that it sort of start increasing in reward pretty quickly. Or if it doesn't do anything productive, then your reward curve mostly stays flat and then it just sort of, it, it just depends on when does it luck into seeing the right thing or not. And I think this is where a lot of the variance comes from. Just these things that can like oftentimes come down to random chance on when you see the takeoff versus when you don't. I guess my intuition on this, you could tell me if I'm right or wrong, is that um, it, in the like most general reinforcement learning case, I just have a state machine that's taking actions and at some point eventually we'll get a, rand a reward. And it's like a totally random search until you get there. And there's no way to know, like, in addition to, like, the randomness you might get from a non-convex loss surface in supervised learning, you also have this, like, totally random search. And maybe sometimes you'll find something good, and maybe sometimes you won't. And unless you have a better search algorithm uh, with some stronger reward signal to guide the initial stages of the search, you're just going to have a hard time and a whole lot of variance. Is that fair? Yeah, that, that sounds pretty fair. Right, which reflects on the updates that you give to the model in, in a supervised model, you'll, you'll have a data set and you'll be shuffling your, your data points, but it is the same uh, data set basically, right? But depending on which path you take uh, when you're training your model in DeepRL, you'll be exposed to different uh, updates. Yeah, right. Uh, I think there are also like a few 
I'm not sure if there's anything published for this, but I know that some people have done some experience trying to understand what does your reward like loss landscape look like in our problems. And all of the things I've seen for it suggest that a lot of times it looks like there's like a lot of fairly flat plateaus and then like a big cliff for like increasing reward and then like a plateau after learning the task. So I guess it goes back to like the, the random search question of like, when you're in this like flat valley, like everything sort of looks about the same. And it, you just have to hope that you randomly move towards the cliff eventually. So uh, you put together a, a short list of success stories in deep RL research and um, you identify some of the common themes or common properties uh, that you recommend for like to minimize frustration of a researcher who wants to do any work in this area. Uh, do you, do you would like to walk us through the list? Uh, sure, yeah. So well, one thing that helps a lot for RL is that if if you actually can just generate a lot of data, then then a lot of times you you can be fine because of like like reinforcement learning can be data inefficient, but if if you have a lot of data, then this isn't really a problem anymore. Um, uh, another thing that can help is if if just like the core learning problem is not really like super difficult or only has like maybe like a short number of steps within it in terms of like what what gets hard for reinforcement learning is when you basically need to do say like 10 things right in order to succeed uh if you have to do if you have to make like 10 correct decisions in a row before you receive positive reward then it's very hard for random exploration to actually do this whereas if you only need to do maybe like two or three things correct in a row it gets a lot easier um, I guess the question of like how easy it is to randomly do the correct thing or not is like very problem dependent. But I like I think thinking about the length of like how many things have to go right for things to start working is uh, a good heuristic for this sort of thing. Um, I'd say that another thing that has empirically been shown to work pretty well is self-play. Uh, this is pretty much restricted to environments where you have like two agents that are competing against one another. Uh, but this is something that that DeepMind did for AlphaGo, and it's something that OpenAI did for their Dota 2 uh, AI as well. And in both cases, somehow when you have agents playing against copies of themselves, there's there's something about the process that makes learning like get a lot faster um, in terms of like exploring new strategies and so on. And I'm I'm sure there are lots of like intuitive arguments you can make for it in terms of like agents like being in competition with one another, another and so on. I don't have super great intuitions for why it helps so much, but empirically it does seem to help a lot. Um, and I guess one other, maybe like the final thing that would be important is that we, I guess I've been talking a lot about how it can take a long time to explore to your first initial positive reward. And one of the ways to get around this is essentially having like a very rich reward signal where a lot of your actions give you like either like a small boost or a small penalty. And I suppose that that this does come back into like the reward shaping issues where if you if you tune these boosts or penalties poorly, then you can sometimes get weird results. But a lot of times doing this sort of reward shaping to to encourage moving in the right direction, so to speak. It is just important for the problem and it is just something you have to do. Yeah, I got mixed signals from the post whether you're recommending uh, the reward signal to be 
shaped or uh, or just like one at the end of the episode and I but it seems like from what you're saying now you you do think it's best to have a shaped uh, reward function if you know how to design it yeah I think what I would recommend is that you should try a, a more sparse reward first and if that's learnable then you don't really need to do anything more but if that isn't learnable, then you should start thinking about how do I shape my reward for this. And the reason I would recommend it this way is that generally sparse rewards are less gameable than like shaped rewards. So if you can learn your reward that is less gameable or less likely to misrepresent what things you want, then you should just do that. All right. Uh, any other thoughts uh, before we conclude? Um, no, not really. Uh, I guess this was fun to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks.